to get you, uh, you know, highly interested in the in, in the panel this discussion, and not because of my questions, but because of the uh, uh, because of the people that we have on the panel to, to you know uh, this year, and it's amazing uh, that uh, so many people from all over the, the world are now coming to Shanghai these days. It seems that China uh, China's importance in global shipping and global trade. Uh, is of course uh, rising for many reasons. I mean, we, we will speak about shipbuilding, we will speak about financing. Um, but, um, but what is important is that, first of all, I will introduce you to, to my fellow panelists here. Uh, to my left, uh, it's Mr. Ted Young, who is the CFO of uh, Dorian LPG. Uh, then we have Mr. Vasilis Kertsikov, who is uh, Vice Chairman uh, of Ellison uh, uh, Holdings. Uh, then we, we have Ruine Anquist, who is the Managing Director of Oceanic Marine Management. Uh, then we have Mr. Bob uh, Burke, who is the CEO of Ridge Bay Tankers. And last but not least, it's Mr. Stamatis Chandanis, who is the uh, CEO and Chairman of Synergy Maritime Holdings. Now, it's been a very interesting year so far. A couple of years ago, uh, everyone was very pessimistic. Last year, it was a good, um, you know, it, it, it was a very positive break, at least for some sectors. For some other sectors, uh, uh, things remain negative, but there is some hope that things will, will change soon. And, and we're very lucky because we have people from the dry bulk industry, we have people from the tanker industry, from the gas industry, and then, of course, we have who is in most sectors. So let me start uh, my questions by asking the basics. How do you see this year progressing uh, on, onwards in your sector? Uh, Teddy, if, if, if you'd like to start. Um, I gotta turn it on here. Is that on? No, that's on. Um, well, hopefully the year will progress better than it started for us. Um, you know, I think, um, like overall, uh, the macro trade environment uh, is a bit uh, uncertain for all of us in all sectors. Um, on the other hand, at least in our subsector, we continue to have good fundamentals uh, driving our business. Fleet global uh, is globally in balance for the first time in about three years. So. And I'd say we're sort of cautiously optimistic for the future, but uh, obviously the geopolitical risk is probably significantly increased from where it was, you know, even a few months ago. Vasily, I think that your fleet also is active in the same se sector, or at least part of your fleet. What, what's your, your view uh, on that sector, but also in the tanker sector? Yeah, I was going to um, echo uh, Ted's remark. Um, about being cautiously optimistic. We're in product tankers and uh, LPG, including petrochemicals. So um, you all know the tanker market um, is, is, is at or near bottom. We've seen earlier, earlier, you know, quite early in the year, there was a good uptick due to winter weather. That has slowed down, but um, particularly given the supply uh, fundamentals that Ted alluded to, we are optimistic about um, the latter part of the year, and also 19 and 20, also given the regulatory push that we see. And on LPG, um, the fleet is uh, more in balance, especially in the lower petrochemical segment. And given the growth mostly happening in China and India, we expect that market to recover faster. So, you know, we are cautiously optimistic um, for both segments. The, the one remark I would disagree with, Ted, is geopolitics. You know, geopolitics is a big risk 
or is a risk um, in, in, in general. But as far as shipping, you know, generally has been the case in the past that, you know, um, a rise in geopolitic geopolitical risk has meant, you know, improved rates rather than the other way around. So, um, you know, that doesn't mean we pray for war, but um, uh, uh, to the contrary, of course, as everybody. But, um, you know, rising tensions normally, as far as uh, particularly uh, oil is concerned, mean um, increased dislocations, and increased dislocations, mean, you know, is good for trade. And good, for, and good trade is, means better rates. So if geopolitical tensions escalate, that might actually be a, a, a positive for uh, shipping in the short term, at least on the tanker side. Okay, uh, I'll ask Bob, because he's also in the tanker industry. Do you, do you share the, the views of your uh, fellow speakers or, or, or do you have another opinion about the market? Well, first, I want to thank everybody for staying. Um, quite frankly, I don't know if I would have. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we have a lot of crude exposure, and we have a lot of spot market exposure. And someone read a uh, someone wrote a report. I don't know one of the Norwegian groups uh, around December that and the, the highlight. The title was "It's Darkest Before the Dawn." And then uh, someone came in the office the other day and looked at the title and said they were wrong. Um, you know, it's even darker now. I mean, the, the rates are below operating costs. But um, you know, the, the good thing about our side of the industry is the demand is fairly constant. Actually, it's very constant. And um, the scrapping is picking up. So, uh, you know, I'm the eternal optimist. So I am going to call for Thanksgiving Day in the States, which I think is November 23rd at 3 p.m. That's going to be the turning point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. And Stamati, um, uh, how, how about the dry bulk industry? Um, I, I, I think this year has had a slower start compared to last year, but are you more positive for, for the uh, remainder of the year? Uh, thank you, Christopher. Well, we operate our fleet mostly in the Cape size segment. Well, almost all of our deadweight tonnage is in uh, the Cape sizes. Uh, we're very optimistic about uh, 2018 and um, the next two to three years. We strongly believe that the fundamentals are there for um, the demand uh, for the Cape sizes, as well as the supply fundamentals have been, are the best of the last uh, 15 years. So we're very confident that we will see a very strong increase in our market. Uh, we are, of course, a little bit uh, cautious about the global um, political environment, but uh, generally I think that uh, all these uh, disruptions will end up having uh, a very positive effect uh, for shipping and especially the capes. Okay, uh, and when I, I, I left you last uh, on purpose because you can basically sum up for every sector because you, you see most sectors and maybe you would like to express your opinion about each of them. Sure, thanks very much. Um, we, as, as you say, we're active in, uh, in most sectors including crude products, containers, uh, dry bulk, chemical tankers and we, we are also echoing the panel really. We're quite positive about all segments, obviously crude and products and also chemicals are having quite a challenging time at the moment. But we'll see what OPEC and, and Russia decide to do at the next, at the next juncture. Um, and hopefully that will, if they turn up, turn up the volumes, then obviously that will have a massive effect on the, on the demand side. Um, in the container space where we operate mostly in the sub-Panamax, so the 2,500 up to 3,005 and slightly above segment, we see a massive demand increase uh, and the supply is quite steady. Um, we see container throughput across the world in, in the big ports uh, increasing uh, month by month. 
We've seen a fifth, we've actually seen 25% increase in rates since October uh, 17, and that's all based on the context um, measurement. So that's a very increase. There's a very improving and very positive outlook for container ships and container shipping for this year. And the dry bulk can also agree with what the rest of the speakers have said. We see a positive view. Um, we see across all the, we are active in handies and Camsomaxes and, and Supermaxes and Ultramax, increasing charter rates, increasing demand, and a very positive outlook. But obviously there is these geopolitical risks that have to be, um, have to be calculated and put into the models. But uh, I also think that uh, these things will, it's a show of strength from two large uh, countries which try to um, establish some new sort of balance which eventually will have to come to some kind of sort of agreement and terms and hopefully that will not have a long-term impact on our business. Um, I think that covers it all. Yeah, but if you, so, well, I assume that there are a number of investors here. Where would you advise them to, to, to put their money in at, at this point of time? In, in which sector? Well, Bitcoins, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> container ships, uh, container shipping looks, smaller ships there looks quite interesting. Um, also, I think there's a potential for tankers. The prices have come down, scrapping is starting to pick up. So hopefully there's a value appreciation story for tankers. Uh, bulkers, potentially uh, quite highly priced at the moment given the market conditions. Um, I think even the, la the latest drop in the market is not really going to sink or bring the prices down too much uh, in the second-hand market. Um, so there's, I think there's opportunities across all segments and it's really where you're comfortable to invest rather than uh, what, what we think. Thank you. And talking about the market, we spoke about short-term, about the, the, the ongoing year, but I would like to also ask you, there are certain regulations coming in play uh, in, in a couple of years' time, there are big question marks about uh, uh, scrubbers, uh, water ballast treatment. Do you, do you really believe that the ship owners are well prepared for these changes or this uh, factor could change the markets completely? Ted? Um, I'll say, in, uh, I, I think uh, ship owners generally are uh, well aware of what, what's facing them. I think everyone has a different view. In our case, um, we've uh, we've already installed scrubbers on two of our 22 ships. Uh, we have another seven that are scrubber ready, so the installation cost and time will be significantly reduced um, versus having done nothing. We've also announced that uh, we've conducted a, <clears throat> an engineering economic feasibility analysis uh, to evaluate the possibility of using LPG as bunker fuel. Um, that's pretty exciting, uh, and I think, I think as a general matter, People are well aware of what's, uh, what's on the horizon, the capital involved, and uh, I think you see people making bets. The traders are all putting in scrubbers. Uh, Maersk says they're not worried, and somewhere in between probably lies the truth. Vasily? Yeah, again, I would agree with Ted that somewhere in between lies the truth. And um, <clears throat> just, the fact, just the fact that you're asking the question, and, and, and there was a question about that, previous panel, you know, there's, a, there's quite a bit of uncertainty. And, um, you, know, uh, the com you know, the owners are not as prepared as 20 years ago with, with Open 90. Open 90 was a very defined, clear regulation and, and there was a lot of lead time to adjust. This is not as defined, not as clear. And um, 
there's not much time to adjust. So I think it's one of the uh, one other factor why, particularly the tanking market may um, surprise to the upside in the next two three years, just because there's a lack of proper adjustment and there's quite a bit of uncertainty. So I, I don't think it's factored in prices, and um, and I, I think so. So going back to your initial question, I, I would put my money in tankers. I mean, obviously I'm a bit biased, but I think I really think that's where the value is today, uh, even without this large uncertainty, which is regulation. Reiner? <clears throat> obviously these regulations are extremely complex, or the result of the regulations present a very complex problem for the owners. And uh, the decision is far from crystal clear on what to do, as we all know. Um, I, I believe that this is a segmented problem. You have to look at each vessel separately and see the age profile and the, and the size of the vessel and whether you can, as also been mentioned some, in some, by some speakers today, whether you can actually access the HFO that you need to make any commercial sense of the scrubbers after a certain period of time. That's going to be the question, especially for smaller or medium-sized tramp trading ships, whereas for VLCCs and large container ships and Suez Maxis and Capes, etc., it might make more sense. We have a steady trade from between two to three to four ports, and that's where it starts to make some uh, quite clear sense to install scrubbers. But it's a, it's a difficult decision, complex decision, and definitely the industry guide or the regulatory guidance is, is not really as clear as one would hope for. But, but, but any, any disruption to the uh, trade patterns is good for shipping. Mm -hmm. um, there'll be disruption in the refineries, there'll be uh, too much residual oil in different parts of the world that can't refine them, there'll be nowhere to put it. Yep. Um, ships will go faster or slower, depending. So in general, when there's a huge disruption uh, and inefficiencies in, in the supply chain, it's always good for our industry. And I think um, you know, the issue of whether or not to install scrubbers is one issue, and then the issue of inefficiency, uh, which the optimist bets on, is the other one. Thank you. Um, personally, yes. Personally, I'm very much uh, surprised with uh, the confusion it's out there about uh, this uh, scrubber issue. First of all, I agree with the rest of the panel that it's a very complex issue. I've been hearing um, for months now that there are 20,000 ships potentially eligible to install scrubbers. Uh, in my opinion, this is uh, totally wrong. Um, it doesn't really make sense to install scrubbers on the smaller sizes, and uh, it's very difficult to retrofit um, existing tonnage. So, uh, like the previous speaker said, you have to clearly assess the size of the ships, the consumption of the ships, and the age of the ships. So not all ships are eligible to install the scrubbers. From our calculations internally, that we've done a very, um, you know, thorough model about the installation of the scrubbers, um, we think that there are about three to four thousand ships globally that are eligible for the installation of the scrubbers. And out of those, we calculate that only 30% of those uh, will potentially install the scrubbers. Mm. However, also have in mind that uh, in previous um, times where we saw a disruption of uh, the price between the HFO and the MGO, the market had a tendency to correct itself within a very short period of time. So within six months to a year maximum, we saw the refineries catching up with incremental demand. Mm -hmm. So we don't really think that the actual disruption of the two uh, fuels 
will be so long in order to fully justify the investment. So, you know, I don't know if I gave a clear answer, but, um, you know, generally I think that there is a lot of false um, demand, um, uh, false demand scenarios being made by uh, the scrubber makers in order to create this artificial shortage, which is not there. Thank you. Uh, do, do we remember Y2K and the disruption that was going to cause? <laughs> no, no, seriously. Um, you know, it's never really paid for a ship owner to be a first mover. And I could be completely wrong, but if the differential in fuels is that wide, then there will be a solution that's found quickly. And, you know, our view is as long as you're as well off as the guy next to you, um, then you'll be at the market. And, you know, we've suffered a double in fuel prices in, in quick order before on the market, and it's not fun. But if we have that combined with disruptions in, in you know, in the supply chains, maybe it'll all sort itself out. Um, and to be, you know, totally candid, with the tanker market in below operating cost numbers, it's really hard to justify to your board that you want to spend two, three, four million dollars per ship on scrubbers when you have any amount of vessels. So and, it, uh, make, it makes the decision easier. As a, as a final comment, I must say that uh, installing the scrubbers or not installing the scrubbers, we will certainly see a big disruption um, and a lot of slowdowns in, uh, um, in the speed of the ships starting in 2020. Uh, we estimate that uh, the big percentage of the fleet will need to reduce its speed by at least two knots. So the slowdown effect will definitely create a supply deficit of tonnage. So we will see a strengthening of the market because of that. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you believes that there is uh, that there could be a change in the regulations which will sur surprise everyone. I mean, for example, the technology regarding geofueled engines, uh, you know, it's something that has been talked about. Uh, of course, it, it depends on the size of the vessel, I guess. Do you believe that this matter has now been settled, or do you, do you expect surprises? I'm, I'm asking everybody, so, so if some, somebody wants to, wants to step in. I don't think that the reg... If, it, if you're asking whether the regulation would be postponed, uh, I assume that's the question then I don't believe so anymore. Um, six months ago, I would have probably had a bit more doubt. I had more doubt, but the European Union official seems to be very bent on implementing this, and the IMO is, is definitely following, following in that step. Thank you. If, if there's not enough fuel and ships can't move, then something will happen. I mean, the world's, the world's not gonna stop. So, so I agree with Bob. and. and um, and it's refineries, it's, it's this whole supply chain that has to adjust, and that's very, very difficult. So yeah, there will be um, postponements and so on, but, but the, the, the effect will be felt. Okay, thank you. Another factor which seems to be affecting um, the markets these days is the lack of financing. Uh, a number of ship owners globally who are quality ship owners, but they don't have the size possibly that the you know the top tier owners have, and 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 of course we we do have the effect of the global uh, ship finance you know in in terms of banks at least withdrawing uh, from from the sector. Not all of them, but you know some traditional names are now out of the market. And, and, and I just wanted to ask all of you, do you really believe that fine line, lack of financing could be a factor in the, for, you know, go, going forward? Ted? Um, <clears throat> I think, like the other panelists have sort of noted, um, shipping has a wonderful capacity for invention and reinvention. Um, you know, in spite of the well-publicized withdrawal of uh, HSH, RBS, um, you know, pick, pick your German bank, pick your European bank, 
Um, you know, we still see um, pretty healthy shipbuilding environment. We saw huge waves of new buildings across all sectors um, in the, within the last decade. Um, look, I think the bigger trick is um, will owners, uh, owners have to be careful with the new forms of ship financing that are out there. Um, you know, the so-called alternative capital providers, um, look, it doesn't make sense to me, I'm a simple guy, but when some 22-year-old hedge fund guy comes up and tells me he needs 12% return to lend me money to buy a ship and it's an 8% asset class, I'm pretty sure that math doesn't work. Um, and guess what, if I take that deal, um, he's just, um, you know, sold me an option on my equity and um, probably doesn't realize it. So. Um, I, th I think that um, shipping has always done an amazing job of, um, of figuring these things out. I think we've witnessed the transformation, um, at least in the equity base, from more uh, from fewer family-held businesses to more institutionally-owned businesses, whether that's on the stock market or um, group of institutional investors or indeed private equity investors. Um, I think shipping will, will find a way to prosper because the world needs shipping. You, it, the trade grinds to a halt. Yeah. It's, um it's really interesting when you see a ship owner or a so-called ship owner. He'll ask, and he sees another ship owner. He'll say, "How many ships do you have?" He never says, "How much money did you make?" And the next question is, "How big are your ships?" And how big are yours? And you know, my own theory is, high leverage was really popular 20 years ago when the commercial banks lent huge amounts of money at one and a quarter over LIBOR, and they mispriced the debt, and the equity uh, took a lot of the benefit of that. So the, the banks were taking equity risk, and the ship owners were taking advantage of it by uh, receiving the optionality in a cyclical market, and the fortunes were made. And now, flash forward 20, 30 years later, and the, the so-called ship owners mostly are ship managers. They're KGs, they're public companies, they're you know whatever they happen to be. So the cost of capital to them is almost irrelevant as long as they get to manage more ships, because the ship owner itself is invisible. It's a public company. It's a KG. It's something of that description. So. As Ted said, if some uh, hedge fund owner lends you money at 12% and you manage 20, 30, 40 ships and you're being paid to manage per vessel, well, you don't really care as long as you get the optionality on the management business forever. So I think that's what's driven a big problem in the market. Uh, you, know, you mentioned 8%. It's an 8% capital business, which is what I've always read and, and, and figured. So why would you lever your asset 60, 70, 80% and pay 8%? I mean, the proper leverage for a real ship owner, and you see the families now with lower leverage of 20, 30%, and they can get that at 300 over, and, and that's more realistic capital structure. Um, and that's where the true equity has sustainability, and that's where you can keep the options for yourself. Otherwise, you end up in a workout or you're paying huge fees, um, and you're hurting your own equity. But as a manager, you, you don't care so much. So um, I think directly answer your question, Christopher, you know, capital is definitely more constrained than five or ten years ago. And um, <clears throat> there is less money around, uh, whether you're a public company or a private company, a, a manager, an owner, or, you know, a family or whatever, there is less money on the margin. And that's generally good because, you know, there's less money to go around to for the next phase, for the next phase of upcycle, which then creates the next, you know, value destruction. So, in general, there's a big plus. Obviously, we've heard today the, um, you know, how Chinese leasing has moved in strides over the last couple of years, three, five years, and um, you know, what is the likely growth of that capital. Um, it cannot fully replace the one that's gone missing from Europe, but it's a very important source going forward. I don't think 
private equity will come back in a big way just because the money hasn't been made and uh, there is some institutional memory with private equity. So the, yes, uh, capital is lacking in general and that should be quite good. Stamati? Um, generally, I think that um, there is still some available capital. It has become more selective. As a company, uh, yes, uh, we went through um, a period that uh, it was more challenging for us to obtain um, you know, the good old bank financing that we were used to. However, I think that um, the traditional banking market is opening up again. And uh, combined with um, alternative sources that uh, some of them are not necessarily so bad, and together with uh, the Chinese leasing companies, I think they will find a way to replace, um, you know, the market to normalize itself. However, you know, abundance availability of capital in the past has always uh, driven the market to big disruptions as far as supply is concerned. And we want to be careful that, um, you know, while the market, the financing market uh, normalizes, that uh, we have to be prudent about the supply of ships and not going, uh, not to go into excesses like, uh, you know, uh, happened before. Thank you. But I just want to ask you all, um, has Chinese leasing brought you here, uh, you know, in the, in the, to this conference? Yes. <laughs> no, but um, yes. I, sure. we've, done, we've done a number of deals over the last few months, and uh, we found the market very receptive, very interesting, deep, and uh, growth, growing. Now, I think the key issue is when do Chinese capital markets um, mature? And I think over the next three, five years, you'll see the disintermediation of the business, just like as you've seen in the West. So I think um, the market will involve, which is very good for the leasing companies themselves and for their customers. Um, the, the, the products will, will adjust to the needs of the customers. And together with the um, bigger maturity of the domestic Chinese capital markets, I think that will inevitably um, uh, change the business. And, um, you know, I, I listened very closely to the remarks of the previous panels about likely changes in the next year or two. I think there's going to be bigger changes as, um, you know, as I said, as the market um, deepens and matures here. And I'm very much looking forward to that. That really is the future. Cathay Pacific brought me here. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, one of the challenges with shipping, and the New York private equity funds learned it, as sort of the New York banks, is that you can put, put a lot of money to work quickly. Um, if you've ever done a commercial real estate deal, it takes forever to put it together. But with shipping, you can put, you can put hundreds of million dollars to work overnight, and it becomes very attractive to um, participants in the capital markets who are paid to put money to work. Now, shipping takes a lot of capital. It, it occasionally gives some back. Um, but it's, it's a difficult industry. And one of, the, one of the harder lessons to learn is it's really important who you do business with. And, you know, as an owner, I think we feel that as much as a, a lender or, as, or an investor does. As uh, far as uh, Synergy is concerned and myself, um, we operate in the Cape size segment, so 95% of our voyages end in China. So <laughs> it doesn't uh, really make, um, you know, something more important as a reason uh, for us to be in China and uh, for us traveling to China as frequent as possible 
is a very important factor to understand the demand drivers of the Cape size trade, which we think will remain to be strong. And of course, the financing market and the leasing, um, which uh, we strongly believe will continue to be a pillar of the ship financing in the next years. But Wayne, the reason why you're here is not because of the financing that uh, Chinese leasing uh, uh, you know, offers, uh, but you're, you're here because you probably see that the Chinese leasing com community is, is also considering ship owning. And, and, and I guess management companies uh, could, could take the benefit of that. I'm not sure what's your opinion you know, and, and what's the result after the meetings you've, you've had, for example. Well, yeah, I see, obviously, I see the transition and also the panel today discussing uh, Chinese leasing also sort of uh, spoke about the evolution and how, how that model will evolve over, over time, which will eventually lead to ship owning or at least um, them taking hopefully a, a, a more direct approach to, to running the assets that they, are, that they have landed against. And uh, what we see is... Uh, the potential to, to uh, for the Chinese leasing companies then to work with international ship managers and asset managers to, to provide the kind of services that, uh, that will deliver value and long-term value preservation for, for the assets that they have lent against. And uh, that is something that we, we believe is important. We do the same thing for our own business uh, where we, we have invested about $1.2 billion in steel over the last few years. And uh, we spent a lot of time looking at asset preservation, asset management, you know, breaking it down into technical oversight, operational oversight, as well as the commercial and chartering to maximize the value back for the, for the investors that we manage money on behalf of. I think that's something that should be interesting to the Chinese leasing community uh, over time as well. Uh, I'm, I'm here to learn. Um, I have no experience with the Chinese leasing community. Uh, and despite what I said before, there is, there is a point in the cycle when it, um, you can lever up for short periods of time, as long as you delever as the market improves. And at those points in the cycle, it's hard to find a partner that, um, that will work with you. And it, it takes time to learn who your new partner is. So as I said, I'm here to learn and to meet new people. As far as um, we are concerned, I think that, <clears throat> and I have a very strong uh, personal and professional rule, uh, that someone needs to stick uh, to what um, you know he knows best. I don't think that uh, the banks or the leasing companies should be becoming uh, ship owners, and I don't think that the ship owners should be becoming uh, lenders. So um, let's stick to what we know best. It's very important that uh, each um, side of the business uh, provides the necessary expertise. Um, yes, of course, the leasing companies are there to assist uh, in our growth, uh, but I don't think it's going to make sense um, for the leasing companies, the banks, the, as it didn't uh, actually make sense for a lot of the private equities to become ship owners and try to get into the game. Because, uh, again, let's stick to what we know best. Thank you. Uh, but, um, I mean, what, what we, we've seen is that, I mean, the Chinese leasing companies not only are thinking of ownership, but, you know, in, in the sense of uh, ordering vessels and then asking somebody like Roine to manage the, the, the vessels, but they also do JJVs. So it's not, you know, the, the way they contribute into the industry is quite different. And, and I would say that, you know, to a certain extent, uh, they are acting as a substitute of what the private equity funds did. Uh, you know, uh, six or seven years ago. But, uh, okay, the last question is, is, is about shipbuilding. And, and I want to ask you, 
first of all, I'm not sure if all of you have experience in terms of building ships in China. Have you seen a lot of changes the past 10 years? Do you see things that can be improved? Um, I don't know if, who wants to start. Well, I, we just uh, delivered our first ship yesterday, you know, so um, we've been consistently not coming to China because we were afraid and finally we did. Uh, but interestingly, this was our second effort, our second try, because our first try was with a yard that went bust a couple of years ago here outside Shanghai. So thankfully, we got, we got our money back. Um, but um, I think that's a little story which tells you the nature of the business right now in China. Um, thankfully, uh, private yards did not, were not saved, so they went away or they're going away, or they've been basically mothballed, and state-owned yards are consolidating. So I think that's a very, very good, again, it's a very good supply, a very positive supply um, uh, indicator for the market in, in the medium term. Um, so yes, uh, there will be capacity, there will be more capacity in China, but I think it's capacity that's checked. Uh, and um, as long as the private sector is left on its own to compete in the international market, I think that's a very healthy sign. Of course, what's happening in Korea is amazing. I mean, who would have thought five years ago that there would be th tens of thousands of people laid off from these major, you know, um, chabols, you know, 50, 100,000 people. That's a huge amount of, of people out of their job in a, in a, in a, in a semi-controlled economy like Korea. So that is a big, big plus again. Um, steel prices are helping. So again, that's, that's why, I, 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 as I said in the beginning, I am cautiously optimistic about the future, and, and, and um, shipbuilding is a major part of my, of my thesis. Anyone else? Yeah. What he said. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. So I have no further questions. I think we're running out of time and it's been a, a long but very interesting day. So I'm not sure if the panel, sorry, the, uh, the floor has any questions. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, I thought just to, to end on quite a lot of positivity from this panel. Um, so I suppose just one at a time, if you could be so kind, if you had a single ship type you had to go for, VLCC, VLGC, Cape, Handy, and modern, vintage, what would you put your money in today? Can I say first? A yacht. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be pretty idiotic not to say VLGC since that's where I already have my money in, so I'll stick with that. A bigger yacht. <laughs> Get off that easy. Yeah. No, I think uh, five-year-old MR. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Five-year-old eco-consumption, well-designed MR. Hmm. 
video? No. I, I think a five-year-old two as. For us, it's obviously the cape sizes. I mean, this is how we have uh, concentrated our fleet, and that's how we think that um, it's the best sector right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for staying, everybody. Thank you, and thank you all. Thank you.